I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part two in the series, Uncompromising Orthodoxy. What you believe matters. And in the Christian tradition, all of our belief begins with God, which begs the question, what comes into your mind when you think about God? Every week, I get letters from people who don't even go to Van City. My name is Josh, by the way. I'm one of the leaders around here at Van City Church. And I get these emails. Occasionally, these letters are encouragements, and sometimes they have practical questions. I got one this morning that was looking for a book recommendation on a certain topic. And sometimes they ask deeper questions. In the fall, I got a letter from someone that opened this way, and I quote, With all your education over the years, combined with your life experience, how in the world are you still so wrapped up in religion and the church? I grew up in the church, this person writes, and listening to your music, but with modern science, societal, and historical evidence, nothing about religious dogma stands up. I can understand holding on to spirituality and certain values, but overall, the position and idea of an omnipotent, omnipresent, and omniscient God that cares what rules you follow is entirely untenable. End quote. When I was a child, I was given a paradigm for God, and the God I was given oscillated between two poles. He was, at times, terrifying and unknowable, that He would command slaughter and rain down fire and sulfur, and He demanded the blood of animals. But then He was soft and cuddly. He was a care bear who loved me oh so very much because He made me so special. And... That God, the Care Bear God, was revealed primarily in Jesus. Jesus, who blessed little children and loved the unlovable and who was often depicted, in my experience, carrying and cuddling little baby lambs. And I liked the Care Bear God, the one who carried the little lambs. The other God, not so much. But the way I figured, liking one was better than not liking either one. And I figured, well, you know, it'll all make sense at some point. But then I went from childhood to adolescence, and the scary God followed. He stalked me up the dark ravines of my adolescent years and into the confusing valleys of early adulthood. And even so, I never gave up on God, on Jesus, on the Scriptures, on the way. I was in, all in. But the scary God grew with me. He lumbered alongside me, an invisible gargoyle tethered to my ankle that mutated and molted until his once distracting presence on the periphery began to cast an inescapable shadow. And it took years of wrestling and therapy and spiritual formation, inner healing prayer, and being formed by the Spirit in the accountability of community to claw my way out of that shadow and to banish the scary God, back to the pit of hell from whence it came. All this because of an error in my doctrine of God. Open your Bibles to Isaiah 45 in the Old Testament. If you're new to the Bible, feel free to consult the table of contents, Isaiah 45. Last week, we began a new series called Uncompromising Orthodoxy. Orthodoxy is a word that means right belief. And for centuries, the church has used this word to describe the beliefs most crucial, sacred, and necessary for following Jesus, for belonging to what the New Testament calls the way, or this ancient movement that we often know as Christianity. If you weren't here last week, go back, listen to the podcast. It was kind of our introduction and overview for what follows. For now, let me reiterate this key point. What you believe matters. 
The idea of doctrine gets a bad rap because it sounds to many of us sterile and unaccommodating. Doctrine, some of us feel, has been unkind to us. And so we imagine it synonymous with rules and regulations, with cruel barriers erected to keep the elite in and the undesirables out. But as I said last week, all of us already have doctrine. And all of us already have a kind of orthodoxy, a framework for right and wrong belief that distinguishes some people from other people based on what they believe. Look at it this way. You ready for this one? Here comes the deep water. Some of you guys really like dogs. Um, Some of you really like dogs. It's a thing. Some people hate dogs. Some people are indifferent. Some people think of them as fine, I guess. And some people really, really like dogs. Now, I believe personally very strongly in the ethical treatment of animals. For as long as I can remember, I've been what some people would call, I guess, an animal lover. And I grew up with pets. We had a few cats. We had, I had a ferret for years. He was wonderful. Uh, Patrick and I, my brother Patrick, we had turtles named Ren and Stimpy that just refused to die. And they got so big <laughs> that we had to just go put them in a lake where I assume they rose to power over the other animals. <laughs> and, and I have had and loved a couple of dogs in my life, but, and here's where I lose some of you, at this point in my life, we are a no-dog household. It's just, you know, we're too accustomed to things not smelling terrible all the time. (laughs) Now, (laughs) here's the kicker. Our daughter, Isla, really, really loves dogs. I don't know why. It's nothing we taught her, believe me. She has dog toys. She has dog stuffed animals. She has books about dogs. She stands at our window watching dogs go down the street like those kids gathered around the, you know, the toy store display in a Christmas story. She's just (laughs) watches them go down and points out, look at this one, look at this one. And she says things like, out of nowhere, mama, if you wanted me to be happy, you would let me have a dog. In fact, the other day, uh, we're all sitting around as a family just having random conversations And Abby asked the kids what they would wish for if they had one wish in the whole world. Beck, our son, it turns out, would wish for the ability to transform into a lizard at will. So there you go. But Isla said, dead serious, if I could have just one wish, anything in the world, it would be to have a dog. And Abby said, well, both of you have about the same odds of your wish coming true. (laughs) I know, I know, it's just so terrible. And uh, here's where I'm going with this, besides making some of you hate me. Um, Let's say that some of you dog lovers were all getting together to take your little dogs to the park, and you dressed them up, and you got your phones ready for all the great pictures you're going to take for, you know, Instagram or whatever, and then here comes Josh with his divisive no-dog household ideology, and all those terrible non-dog-worshipping things that I said in that one sermon, and I show up and I say, I want to come. Now, I don't have a dog, and I don't want a dog, and I don't like your dog, and I, I don't like dog worship, but I want to come. I want to come with you guys. Now, you might be gracious and kind. In fact, you probably are, and maybe you think, well, if he comes along with us, you know, he'll see how amazing it all is, and he'll convert. But convert to what? To your 
doctrine, because even if you let me come along, even if you let me in, I'll never be part of the church of dog or if I don't believe the same things as you. There will always be a line of delineation that makes us different based on the things that we believe, our ideologies. Now, doctrine and the differences between doctrines and the way we live into those differences are inevitable. We have them already, and we have them about all kinds of things, and we live by them. If I say, Jesus is Lord, come on, let's go live in the name of the kingdom of God together as a family, and you say, Jesus is not Lord, and I will not live for the kingdom, we can still be friends, we can still be kind, but our belief and our practice and our lives inevitably will be very different. This is the inevitability of doctrine and belief. It's not inherently good or bad per se, it just is. In the Christian tradition, all our doctrine begins with God. And that's what we're talking about this evening. Before we get into it, a couple of disclaimers. Mountains of books and centuries of sophisticated, nuanced discussion and debate surround the doctrine of God. He is, after all, God. So tonight, we can't possibly unpack all the doctrine of God. We're doing a 30,000 feet overview of the fundamentals, kind of, and, and why they matter. And we will begin, as always, with Scripture. Now, we're about to drop into the middle of a very dense, complex bit of prophetic writing. In context, this part of the story, Isaiah 45, comes after God's chosen people, Israel, have descended into such rebellion and sin that God allows the pagan nation of Babylon to invade Israel, take the Jewish people into captivity, exile from their land. And here, in Isaiah 45... The prophet is reminding the people of Israel about God's promise of hope and salvation. God is still good. God is still going to rescue. He still has a plan for salvation. That though they were being judged and punished for their sin and idolatry, forgetting justice, chasing after other gods, they're still going to be rescued and redeemed because of God's great compassion and forgiveness. But in the story... Israel has kind of lost faith in God's redemption. Things have been pretty dark for a long time, and they've begun deconstructing their faith and pursuing other gods. Nothing like today. So, by the time we get to Isaiah 45, God himself reminds Israel who he really is. Would you guys stand with me as a gesture of respect for the reading of the scriptures? And let's read Isaiah 45, beginning with verse 1. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of, to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and will level the mountains. I will break down gates of bronze and cut through bars of irons. I will give you hidden treasures, riches stored in secret places so that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel who summons you by name. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, of Israel, my chosen, I summon you by name and bestow on you a title of honor, though you do not acknowledge me. I am the Lord. There is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, people may know there is none besides me. I am the Lord. There is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity, create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. I'll pause for a second. In context, this is specifically about exile. Remember, God isn't saying, I cause evil. He's reminding his people that the reason they're in this mess in the first place first place is because he has pronounced judgment on their sin. Keep reading, verse 8. 
You heavens above, rain down my righteousness. Let the clouds shower it down. Let the earth open wide. Let salvation spring up. Let righteousness flourish with it. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to those who quarrel with their maker, those who are nothing but potsherds among the potsherds on the ground. Does the clay say to the potter, what are you making? Does your work say, the potter has no hands? Woe to the one who says to a father, who have you begotten? Or to a mother, who have you brought to birth? This is what the Lord says, the Holy One of Israel and its maker concerning things to come. Do you question me about my children or give me orders about the work of my hands? It is I who made the earth, created mankind on it. My own hands stretched out the heavens. I marshaled their starry host. I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make all his ways straight. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free, but not for a price or reward, says the Lord Almighty. This is what the Lord says. The products of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and those tall Sabians, they will come over to you and be yours. They will trudge behind you, coming over to you and change. They will bow down before you and plead with you, saying, Surely God is with you, and there is no other. There is no other God. Truly, you are a God who has been hiding himself, the God and Savior Israel. All the makers of idols will be put to shame and disgraced. They will go off into disgrace together, but Israel will be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You will never be put to shame or disgrace to ages everlasting, for this is what the Lord says. He who created the heavens, he is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it. He did not create it to be empty and formed it to be uninhabited. He says, I am the Lord, there is no other. These words are inspired by God. Go ahead and take a seat. This is the Bible's theology of God. There is one true creator God. He is the only true God, and he is the only God that saves. And so, in Christian theology and in our doctrine of God, God is all the omnis. He is omnipotent, meaning he's all-powerful. He's omniscient, meaning he knows everything that there is to know. He's omnipresent, meaning there is nowhere you can go or be where God is not. And these concepts, they sound super simplistic, but they're actually pretty complicated and they require nuance and unpacking. But for now, here's the bottom line. God is, well, God and stay with me on this because we're going somewhere, and it's not where all the omni-talk suggests. But to get there, you have to begin with the omnis. This is serious stuff, and we don't always like to hear it because it sounds old school and all fire and brimstone, but I got, I got to tell you, the older I get, the longer I follow Jesus, the more okay I am with that. Look, God is God. He is, in the language of the Scriptures, holy. And I realize that's a, a word a lot of us have trouble with, but you could simplify the word holy by saying that it's another word for unique. God is unique in all the universe. You and I are not all-powerful or all-knowing. We're not all anything except broken. And nothing in the created order is similar to God in His scope and glory and majesty and holiness. We like to put God on trial to kind of talk back to God, so to speak. We call Him into question. We deconstruct Him. And look, that's not all bad. You should ask questions. Doubt is normal and healthy. God is not insecure. He can handle your questions and your confusion. And He certainly invites your sincere wrestling with all of this. 
You think God doesn't understand that it's hard to be a human being? He knows better than you do. More on that in a minute. But putting God on trial eventually wears out. And that's what's provoked all the stuff that we just read in Isaiah 45. God is God. He is the supreme, authoritative, holy, unique in all the universe, relational being that created the heavens and the earth. He made all of this up. You are not. I am not. God is not some dude in black clothes preaching to a handful of people in Vancouver on a Sunday night. And parents... You understand where I'm going with this whole thing. I want to be, I'm a dad, I want to be a kind, compassionate, patient, understanding parent to my three kids. But also, right now, they're they're all pretty little, I just know more than them at this point. Uh, Eventually that'll probably change, but right now I know a lot more than they do. I know them better than they know themselves. I know more about life in the world and what's best, but they don't always understand that. My authority over them is vested in both my superior wisdom and my role and position as their father. So there are times when, for example, this is a real thing, these dorks don't want to wear coats. I have no idea why they want to be cold. Um, So, you know, I'll say, well, we're all heading outside like, no, you have to put on your jacket. And my son Beck will say, but I don't want to wear a coat. And I, I know that after a few minutes with no coat, coat, he'll start shivering and he'll eventually start complaining because it's January, it's freezing outside. So I'll say, I didn't ask if you wanted to wear a coat. I actually didn't ask you anything. I told you, you have to wear a coat. And it's not because I'm drunk with power or because I enjoy being bossy for bossiness sake. It's because I know that they need a coat. And because their welfare is my responsibility and because listening to me has very real, very crucial ramifications on their safety, on their long-term development, I enforce my authority with discipline. Now, they don't always understand that and they don't know why this arrangement matters just yet, but it's on me to enforce it anyway because I do. So frustrating though it may be, we don't grant our children, these tiny kids, their own autonomy over their wardrobes or their diets or their schedules because we know what's best better than they do. They don't know at all, actually. Bad decisions all the time. Uh, We are the authorities in our home, not them. Now, in the same way, God is not our equal. He is not our peer. He is infinite cosmic perfection, and He made all of this up. He knows what works best, not us. The only reason that we know God in the first place is because God chose to make himself known to us. This, in theology, we call the doctrine of revelation. And get this, God didn't have to do that. He could have hidden himself from us. He could have made himself utterly incomprehensible like a human to an ant. Or he could have altogether deceived us for his own entertainment. We do that to each other. But he didn't. He chose to make himself known to us. This is divine revelation. Theologians, theologians distinguish between two types of divine revelation. First, there's general revelation. C.S. Lewis argued that human beings have an innate, inborn longing for morality and equity and justice. And that, he said, is God's self-disclosure in our wiring. The moral longing in our souls reveals God. There's also all this 
the universe. There's volcanoes and seashells and platypus and sunsets and cloud formations, the incredible biological awe overflowing from the world around us. All of that is general revelation. It draws our hearts and minds to the why behind all of this. But then there's special revelation. The difference is that general revelation is for the most part available to all people and automatically so. Special revelation, on the other hand, is revealed in the unique and specific work of God. The Scriptures call special revelation the Word of God, which is a term that can be used to describe Jesus. It could be used to describe the Bible. It could be used to describe God's speaking voice documented in the text in specific instances or to prophetic truth spoken on God's behalf. Within Christian orthodoxy, special revelation has primacy over general revelation, Why? Because we are broken by our own sinfulness. We'll we'll talk more about that in a couple of weeks. But for now, our minds, our perception, our thinking and feeling, our interpretation of the universe can all conspire to corrupt the way we comprehend God's Word. Here's an easy example. If you are a part of Vancity Church, I am one of your pastors, and as the pastor of teaching and creative vision, the greater part of my job is teaching Bible and theology. But when I get up here to teach, I am not inspired by God and authoritative like the Bible is. And the funny thing is, I know that I can be wrong. But I have never once, I can say this with integrity, I have never once climbed up here on a Sunday night and said things that I already knew were wrong. I am doing the very best that I can, but I am human, so I must be wrong sometimes about some things. And that is why we have the Scriptures, the Holy Spirit. That is why we have one another. Your own thinking and feeling, your interpretation of the world around you cannot, on their own, unlock specific divine truth. You need the scriptures for that, you need God's spirit for that, and you need the accountability of the community for that. In her book on doctrine, Dr. Beth Felker Jones writes this, even though God reveals himself to us in creation and our consciences, sin leads us to misinterpret this revelation and distort it into something false. With scripture as our guide, we can look to general revelation and begin to interpret it correctly. Even though the whole of creation testifies to God, without God's special revelation, we are unable to truly know Him. In order to know God, we will have to recognize the particular way He has revealed Himself in history, that is, the Bible. If you want to know the Christian God, you have to go through the Bible because God has revealed Himself to us without error in the Scriptures. And in the Scriptures, God is depicted as something called triune, meaning, and stay with me on this, there is one true God who exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. Again, this from Beth Jones, the one true God, the only God exists eternally in three persons, the same three persons we see at work when Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River by his cousin John. Here, the Father speaks, the Son emerges from the water, and the Spirit descends. All three persons of the triune God are active in this moment as at every moment. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and in total continuity, With the Old Testament, there is only one God. 
God did not become Trinity at some point in time. Rather, God is eternally Father, Son, Holy Spirit. If we want to know the truth about God, we will have to turn to the Father, to the Son, and to the Spirit. God exists eternally in relationship. He is by nature a relational being. And Jesus himself described the Trinitarian dynamic this way. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father in me who is doing his work. If you love me, Jesus says, keep my commands. I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before, the long, before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live. You will also live. On that day, you will realize that I am in the Father, and you are me in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Why, then, are we called Christians, Christians? Because we know through the Scriptures, the way God has revealed Himself to us, that the ultimate, truest, most accurate revelation of the only Creator God is in the man called Jesus of Nazareth. The author of Hebrews puts it this way, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times in various ways, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom also He made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory, and listen to this, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he provided purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So we go to the scriptures to know God, and the scriptures authoritatively attest to the supremacy of Jesus as the exact representation of of the Creator God, His very being. If you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus of Nazareth. Now, to end tonight, here's where I'm going with all of this doctrine of God stuff. It is the ultimate big, fat, both, and. Here we go. See, as far as I can tell it, just about all the existential crises of faith I've seen play out on the stage of life, most of these things blossom from a cracked foundation, and that foundation is the doctrine of God. We want one or the other, God as scary and all-controlling, or God as timid and permissive, and God just can't oblige us, meaning we want the scary God or we want the Care Bear God, but neither one is God. And so eventually the whole thing wobbles and then it tumbles and crashes and burns like a bad turn at Jenga. Some of us want the scary God because there's a sense of security there, I think. You know, you read about how badly children need discipline and structure. If you haven't, here's the basic idea from child psychologists. The world is a big, wild place for a child. In order to feel secure, they need consistent discipline from their mom and dad because even if they fight against it, 
This creates a subconscious sense of security. And they think, my parents are in charge. I don't have to be. The train is on the tracks. Thus, a kid might be outwardly or momentarily thrilled by a setup that has no rules, no consequences, where they call the shots, where they get to impose their own autonomy over everything, no punishments. But the deep long-term effects can be disastrous. Because even if only subconsciously, the kid is learning, my God, I have more authority than my parents, and I'm a kid. And the implications are terrifying, even for a child. So enter the scary God. He is, at times, unknowable, morally ambiguous, to say the least, even terrifying, but he is in control of everything, good or bad. His ways are not our ways, and there's a strange sense of security in that but it comes at a cost. And that cost is often the ultimate erosion of faith. Because we can say that we love a God who commands the slaughter of children for no good reason or who predestines our children for hell, but can you ever really mean it? And if God is relational, even the scary God, how can you ever relate to Him? And so then you get your Josh Porters of the world who grew up around the scary God and got wise to the whole thing. We read the New Testament and we saw in the self-sacrificial love of Jesus of Nazareth and his gentleness and compassion and mercy, no trace of the scary God, at least that's what we thought. Really what happened was when we saw shades of the big authoritative disciplinary God in Jesus, and you do see them in the New Testament, we explained them away. God is love. He's okay with me. He's okay with everything. Sure, the Bible says this or that about God, and that's weird, but we reread all the weird stuff through the lens of our own culturally anchored interpretation of what we want God's love to be. So if the Bible ever depicts God in ways that don't jibe with the ever-evolving cultural sensitivities around whatever, well then, the Bible must be wrong. Jesus must be wrong. God must be wrong. Rather than approaching the Bible as an incredibly sophisticated feat of ancient literature, a work of art inspired by the ultimate artist, we pass our superior judgment over its antiquated morality. So, the Bible uses masculine pronouns for God, but we don't like that. The Bible must be wrong. The Bible presents a certain paradigm for sexuality or marriage or celibacy, but we don't like those paradigms, so the Bible must be wrong, whatever it might be. And this, too, concludes, ultimately, in an unraveling of faith. Because even if we have more wisdom and authority than God, well, ultimately, what's the point? And there's this pervasive misconception that to wrap your head around the fact that God is both all-powerful and authoritative, omni, and the self-sacrificial, loving God revealed in Jesus, then you need mountains of books and spiritual formation, a lot of difficult, nuanced, interpretive gymnastics of the Old versus the New Testaments just to make those two things work with each other. But early on, All the way back in the early scenes of the biblical story, God himself discloses the truth of his own character to people. And it sounds like this, Yahweh came down in the cloud, powerful, cosmic, terrifying. He stood there with him and proclaimed his name, Yahweh. He passed in front of Moses proclaiming, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, 
and sin. This is God's self-disclosure. What am I like? I am compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, and I forgive wickedness, rebellion, and sin. But there's more. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Wow, that is intense. But watch this. There's something really incredible here that gets kind of obscured by our English translation. Now, the word generation isn't actually there in the original text. Literally in Hebrew, it's he punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth. Now, in Hebrew, we believe that this is kind of a poetic stanza. There's an intended symmetry between the opening line and the concluding line. God maintains love to thousands, and he punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth. The first number, the second number. And here's why that's important. Scholars argue that it's important to translate both lines in such a way that you recreate the intended symmetry of the original language. Thus, to depict that consistency in English, the text would read that God maintains love to thousands of generations and he forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin, and he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. There's a very deliberate word picture here. Is God permissive about sin? No. Does he punish evil? He does. God's fiery justice against evil punishes to the third and fourth generation. His mercy, on the other hand, his love and his forgiveness extends out into thousands of generations. It's not literal math, it's a word image. The image is actually of a scale. On one side, you have three or four weights. And on the other side, thousands. God is the all-powerful cosmic judge who comes to destroy evil and punish sin. He does this for us, for the good of human flourishing, justice, the renewal of all things. Even so, God is by nature abounding in love and faithfulness. He is slow to anger. He is compassionate and gracious. And His innate merciful compassion and grace exceed His innate disciplinary justice a thousand times. And here's where we'll land with all that. Our doctrine, all of our doctrine, begins with God. This is why A.W. Tozer argued, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God just as her most significant message is what she says about him or leaves unsaid, for her silence is often more eloquent than her speech. The older I get and the longer I follow Jesus, the more comfortable I am in allowing the complex reality of God to exist in the same place, in one place. God is the compassionate, gracious, good 
Father. And part of His goodness is that He doesn't mess around with evil. A good father does not placate evil. He is not permissive with sin. He is not spineless and lazy with His discipline. And just as it is with good earthly fathers, God's discipline and justice are there to protect us from the natural consequences of sin. God is a gracious, good father, but He means business. You do not mess with God. I think of Paul's words in Galatians, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from their flesh, not God, from their flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Sometimes in our Van City community, we go around the circle and we ask one another if each of us completed the practice that we pledged uh, the week prior. And sometimes, inevitably, someone will say, no, I didn't do it. That's, that's ordinary. That happens. But the weird thing is that right away, someone else will speak up to approve. They'll say, that's okay. Don't worry. That's totally fine. That's great. And it's always frustrating to me because I wonder why. Why is that fine? Of course, we're not here to make one another feel wretched for blowing it once in a while. That happens. But is that how we think of God, rushing to approve of our mistakes? Do you think that when we are disobedient to God, He immediately pats us on the head and says, that's fine. No, don't worry about it. No big deal. Or are there consequences for sin and disobedience? Does God take disobedience seriously? Not to crush us with shame and make us miserable and terrified, but so that we can learn from our own mistakes and for our own sake and for the sake of the world around us. God cannot be mocked. God is God. I'm not. God knows more than I do, and He knows best. And there may be things that God says or does or demands or decrees that I may not like. I'll be honest with you, there are. Spoiler alert. There are, there have been in the years of my life. And that could be because I don't understand, or it could simply be because I, like my son who doesn't want to wear his coat in January, I do not always know what is best. I think I do, but I don't. It could be because I'm broken. Part of me is bent away from God and toward that which is sinful and destructive. Now, don't get me wrong. This can be a painful and frustrating thing to accept. It's not easy. It seems silly to me as an adult when my children are in tears of exasperation over having to wear a coat outside when it's freezing weather. But I had to stop recently, just this past week, and tell myself, really, I get it. I am demanding that they submit to my will. I am imposing my authority over them, but for very good reason, and that doesn't make it any easier. We want what we want. But in this, I am, on my best days anyway, I am demonstrating my trustworthy authority over my children. And they will learn in time, just like I did of my parents, that all of this is a gesture of my love for them. Some of you may have an intimidating, ominous, scary God that haunts your imagination, the one who is all punishment and no grace. And others of you, maybe more of you, I wager a guess, have stitched together a care bear God of your own design who is all permission and who takes no issue with evil at all because, hey, find your own truth. Unless 
Something is declared evil by your ever-evolving socio-political landscape of your current personal ideological preferences, in which case, oh yeah, God hates that. He hates exactly what you hate, and He loves exactly what you love all the time. Neither God, the scary God or the Care Bear God, is revealed in Scripture. Neither God is the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit of the Christian movement. And all our doctrine begins with God. So tonight, the invitation is to ask yourself, what comes into your mind when you think about God? And then ask yourself, how is it wrong or imbalanced or twisted? And then finally, don't stop there. What will you do now? Remember, God is relational, a person, not a human being, but a person, not an abstract concept. If you thought wrong things about God, held God to wrong standards, punished God for things He did not do, denied God His own personhood, then the appropriate response is repentance. Confess all of this to God. Ask for His forgiveness. Ask that by His Spirit in you and with the community of God's people, He would lead you in a better way, into the truth. Bring your incorrect pictures of God to the community of God's people for accountability. This part of the process was absolutely instrumental in my own process of repentance. Because I kept all these things inside for years and was hurting. And then finally, I brought it out to my friends and to my pastors and to my therapists, and I confessed and I prayed and I asked for forgiveness and the Spirit with the community led me away from lies and into the truth. The compassionate and gracious God understands that you are not perfect and that this is very hard, that understanding God is at times difficult. And that same God, the God who is all the omnis, all-powerful, all-knowing, omnipresent, that same God, He emptied Himself of all those omnis, just to enter into our pain and suffering as a finite human being in Jesus who hurt and suffered and died. So he knows. He knows better than anyone. You can come before him and expect empathy and compassion and mercy. You don't have to ask for them. You don't have to wonder whether or not He will give them. You can expect them because God Himself says it is in His nature to give them freely. He says so. And really, this is yet another way in which God is so incredibly unlike us. God is good. We are not. Last week, we read one of the earliest church creeds together. Just earlier this evening, we read it again. The Apostles' Creed is beautiful. A little later came something called the Nicene Creed, which further elaborated on the basic theological claims of the Apostles' Creed. And it has been, like the Apostles' Creed, recited by disciples of Jesus all over the world across many traditions and continents and centuries as this beautiful declaration of shared doctrine. So to end tonight, would you guys stand with me? And we are going to read the Nicene Creed together as a family, declaring our doctrine of God. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. I believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, 
begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried and rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and Son is adored and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. I believe in one holy and apostolic church. I confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.